Let me uh, echo Brother Kyle and just say, and Matt, and say thank you, welcome. Um, we have a lot of seats on this side. I see if you've entered in through this door, there's some open spaces up here. They are in the front row, but I really only spit in these first two sections. And so kind of over there, you'll be fine um, if you guys would like to find a more uh, comfortable seat. Um, it's a joy to be with you and to uh, just worship together. I want to begin, um, if you were here early, which many of you might not have been, you might be able to see this after, um, but this last week we had our kids' summer bash. Um, we've had just an amazing summer here at City Church of um, just leading kids, pointing them to Jesus, and having many opportunities to share the gospel with kids and families. And so, so grateful to our kids team um, who were uh, made Kids Summer Bash just a possibility. And so many of you, I look around the room, and so many of you uh, were a part of that ministry, um, whether it was bringing food for leaders or serving on the team and teaching and, and being a team leader. And one of my favorite things about Summer Bash is that we get to see so many of you in such a great diversity. I think of just even um, in our, uh, uh, from our youth uh, ministry and our students um, all the way up, uh, every person in our church is being engaged. It's such a gift. What an awesome thing it was. And so thank you so much if you were a part of that, if you were part of leading that. I just want to uh, let you know how grateful we are. Um, and if you're a guest with us this morning, perhaps you bought, brought your child here to Kids Summer Bash. We're so glad to welcome you in worship and glad that you um, are able to be with us this morning. Um, two other uh, just brief things. Um, you were intended to have an opportunity to hear um, our student minister, Caleb Mucklow, uh, open God's word this morning and preach uh, to you. And um, he unfortunately fell ill and he's not feeling too good. And so late last night he uh, called, you know, he gave me the signal and said, hey, I got to tap you in. And so here I am. Um, and uh, it is, a, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. But um, if you just be, be remembering Caleb in your prayers this week, he is, needs to be full strength uh, to send our students off to camp camp here in just a few days, and so um, he is resting this morning and uh, um, being with him. But I also want to say, um, I know that plagiarism is not a good thing, and so I am using Caleb's notes, all right? So Caleb sent me his notes, um, is what we're going to be looking at here uh, in Matthew chapter 10, and uh, this is a text that I asked Caleb to preach, and you'll understand why here in a few minutes, um, but uh, I'm glad to be here. I also, just to get it out of the way, yes, I did dress as much like a firecracker as I possibly could on this July 4th, so just to let you not be worried about that all morning and that be a distraction to you. We have just finished our Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we spent last year, most of last year, working our way through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, uh, looking at Jesus' teaching to us, his uh, most extensive sermon. Of course, the greatest preacher that ever lived was Jesus himself, and so he taught us so much about his kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom that he brought to be. And this summer, what we are going to do, I've shared with you many times, if you're a guest with us, it's our practice typically to work our way through text like we have just finished doing, chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. We will restart that this summer, however, we are going to sort of jump around through some various texts. And what we are going to do, what I want to do is allow us to take some times to look at the disciples, to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This fall, even I'm looking further forward, we are going to have a, a, a very heavy emphasis 
on the calling as a church to be disciples and to make disciples. That was the mission that God gave us as we, as Jesus was just prior to his ascension to go sit at the right hand of the Father. He said, go and make disciples. And we are called to make disciples. And we must first be disciples if we're gonna be a part of making disciples. Looking at discipleship, and we're gonna get very practical. Um, you, uh, if you have ever gone to a Bible school, you'll know that you took a class in practical theology. What is the study? What do we know about God or what we know about God? How does that impact our lives practically? And so that's where we're gonna go this fall. And so to sort of help us lead into that this summer, we are going to spend the next few weeks really looking at attributes of a disciple. Who is a disciple? What makes us disciples? What do we look like if we are disciples of Jesus Christ? And so that's where we come to Matthew chapter 10. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, he sends out his 12 disciples. He has told them that they will be persecuted uh, as they go out into the world. And he's also encouraged them to not have fear this is, in some senses, Jesus giving them really like their pep talk. Um, many of you, if you participated in any sort of sporting endeavor, um, you might know that you gather in the huddle and you sort of coach, or in the locker room, coach gives you a pep talk. He wants to get you ready for the battle that you're about to face. And so in some ways, this is Jesus doing that. And here in Matthew chapter 10, though, he ends this sort of speech of after preparing to send them out, telling them all that they are going to face. And he gives them this sort of strange word, a challenging word, something that wouldn't seem like something you might hear if you were saying, okay, church, we're about to go out into the world. We're called to go and make disciples. I'm gonna send you out. We're gonna go out into our neighborhoods. These are all the things we're gonna, people are gonna tell you no. People aren't gonna answer their doors, all these other sorts of things. And then Jesus comes to these words that Frank read for us in verse 34. And he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A little bit strange, a little bit interesting. Why does Jesus say this? And why does he include this as he is sending the apostles out to go and do the mission that God has given them to make disciples, to share the gospel? And when we read this, the first thing that we have to understand and we look at is it says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. And that's confusing because we remember from the Beatitudes Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then here Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Isn't Jesus the prince of peace? John 14, 27 says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Well, the first thing to help us understand what Jesus is saying here is we need to realize that Jesus is using symbolism. This is not a direct word, and it's not, it doesn't connect directly to the context or the way that we might use these words. But what Jesus is saying when he talks about peace, when he talks about the fact that I leave you with peace, my peace I give to you, this is a peace with God. What, God, what Jesus did, what he brought about was peace and the availability, the opportunity to have peace with God. 
Now, it's not talked about a lot, and we don't probably like to think about this a lot, but if we are not in Christ, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. Outside of Jesus, in our sinfulness, we are enemies of God because God is holy and God is just, and in his holiness and justice, those who are apart from him are considered enemies, the sinfulness of their hearts. And so what Jesus came to bring was peace with God. Only through him would peace come. And so he came, and through him, we can have peace. And the peace that Jesus offers is not an absence of fighting. See, again, we think of peace, and we think in terms of language of war. Because in our context, especially I know growing up, we had the conflict in the Middle East, which has been looming and raging since I was born, since before I was born, for it seems like all of time. I remember as a child them talking about, would there one day be peace in the Middle East, in these areas of conflict? As we in our country have engaged in various wars, we have tried to find peace. And that just means sort of this, in our context, when we say that word, it often means an absence of fighting. But that's not the peace that Jesus was speaking of. The peace that he is speaking of is a restored relationship to God. Just as shocking as it might have been for you to hear me say, perhaps, that without Christ and absent of Christ, if we don't have a relationship with him, that the Bible says that we are enemies of God, it is even more shocking for me to tell you, I hope, that you do not have to be an enemy of God, but that you can be called a son or a daughter of a holy and righteous God because Jesus brings that kind of peace. Don't be shocked that you're an enemy of God. Be shocked that he would love us enough in our sinfulness, to adopt us as sons and daughters. That should amaze us all. And this is the peace that Jesus is speaking of. So when he says and when he calls himself the Prince of Peace, he is talking about bringing us into right relationship with God. The peace that we have with God, the peace that he offers is because he knew he would lay down his life for us, for our sinfulness. And what he did would, make, would be a permanent Resolution of peace. Of course, then we see that Jesus says, I did not come that I might bring peace. Okay, what does that mean? But to bring the sword, here is where we understand what Jesus is saying in this statement. He came to bring peace with God to us. But Jesus knew full well that the message of the gospel, what he came to bring, that type of peace would cause disruption on the earth. Look what he says. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. Don't think I've come to bring peace here. What is going to be experienced because I have come, because my kingdom has been announced and has arrived and I am here, because of the message I'm going to proclaim to you and the message that I'm sending you out to proclaim, there is going to be turmoil. There will not be peace because of what I say. But there will be a sword. Now recently, I've seen us get this part of the verse wrong as well. Many Christians quoting this verse as an excuse or even a calling to go on the attack against anything that they view is wrong. And this is the challenge when we read our Bibles. So often what happens when we read our Bibles, I'm sometimes prone to this. I know that we all are tempted to this. We look for ourselves in the stories that we're reading, right? Right? 
We want to understand where we are in this message. That's why so often the very common mistake, a very easy one to think about in the story of David and Goliath, who do we become? We become David. Surely the story of David and Goliath is about me facing my big challenges and that God will be with me. By the way, that's not what the story of David and Goliath is about. Perhaps I'll do a sermon on that someday soon. That story is about Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one who will defeat all enemies, which is our own sins, and bring peace with God. But we like to insert ourselves in here. And so when we read this, we say to ourselves, well, great, Jesus didn't come to bring peace. And I am one of Jesus's, uh, uh, you know, I'm a brother of Jesus, a sister of Jesus. I am an adopted son of God. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so it's my responsibility also to bring the sword. And we think of the sword as going on the offensive or going on some attack against Jesus or against all of the enemies and the evil of the world. This is not what Jesus is saying. Our righteous anger is not the sword. We aren't the sword. And praise God, this is true. The sword that Jesus is talking about here, and we're gonna understand it more in just a moment, is the gospel. The sword is the gospel. The amazing truth, the unbelievable message that God would send his own son to lay down his life for sinful, broken people, and through our faith in him alone, we could be considered, we could be adopted, we could be called righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. This is the sword that Jesus brought. And because this message is true, and Jesus knew what this would do, how this would confound the powers of the world, he knew that it would bring attack. And he knew that the world would be turned upside down with this message. And so he's warning the disciples, you're gonna go out into the world as my disciples. You're gonna take a message that I give you. Don't be surprised when everything turns upside down, when the world goes crazy in response to what you say. Don't let that shock you. And don't think simply because what you say and the message that you offer, the love and the grace and the hope of the gospel message, when you present that and people react with that to that in some negative way, don't think that you've got the message wrong. How many of you when you've gone out into any sort of relationship, and I'm not going to be talking about specifically here a gospel message, but you've gone over to a friend's house, you've gone to a neighbor, and you've taken some sort of a message, or even within your own family group, spouses, you've said something to your spouse or to another, and it's received, and you're like, don't shoot the messenger. And you're thinking to yourself, did I get it wrong? Did I say that the wrong way? Am I sure that the message that I, am I saying what I thought I meant to say? And Jesus knows that that's what we are going to face. That's what his disciples would face when they went out into the world with the message of the gospel. He knew that it would turn the world upside down. And so he says, don't think because peace isn't what is the response, but rather there's this turmoil and attack comes. Don't think that you've got it wrong. And this leads us to the first point. That being a disciple of Jesus is offensive to a lost and broken world. Being a disciple of Jesus is offensive to the world. We are a, the gospel, the, the Bible says, is a stumbling block. Jesus describes himself as a rock of offense. Our message 
The hope we have is offensive to the world. It's even divisive sometimes. Because what we say is that we don't find our greatest hope within ourselves. The gospel says that I am in the wrong. The gospel says I am not enough. The gospel says I have a massive problem that I have no ability to fix or reconcile on my own. The gospel says I can't do it on my own. The gospel says I need help. Now take all of those eyes and insert you and you're offended because now I've pointed the finger. I've said you have a problem you cannot fix on your own. You have a problem a challenge, a brokenness that exists in your life. You are not enough. What does the world say? You're beautiful, you're fine, everything's great. Just listen to your heart. You have everything that you need possibly in the world you possess within yourself. You need no one. Think of all of the positive messages that the world has to offer. We don't go to bookstores anymore. I know we do this mostly online. But I encourage you to visit a bookstore if you can find one. I don't even know where there might be one. But if you can find one, I know there is a mall over there. Y'all know how I feel about that place. I won't go there. <laughs> and I think here's a large one there. But if you go to that place or you get online even and you just sort of look for self-help, look under that section Will you find the gospel there? I assure you, you will not. You will find every message under the sun about positivity, about yourself, about all you can do, all of these things, and nowhere will you find the message of the Bible because it's offensive, because it says all of these books, I'm not gonna say that they're all worthless. Don't, you can read some books, it's okay. But all of those books, in contrast to this book, are worthless. They hold no value. They preach no message that will actually last. This is the message that will last, the peace that he came to offer. And because of that, Jesus knew that. And so we know that being a disciple is offensive. It attacks our egos. And ultimately, it's offensive because we know it's true. Have you ever been confronted with an issue before? Someone, again, a family member, your spouse more than likely, or a friend says to you, hey, brother, sister, loved one, this is kind of messed up in your life. When do you get the most angry? When it's the most true. If it's not true at all, you go into defense of yourself. No, that, that never happened. I never said anything like that. That's not what I meant. But when you know it's true and it's told to you that it's true, you're offended. Your heart breaks within you. This is the gospel message. This is what it does. We speak that truth. I know that that is true, but when we share it, it becomes offensive because it hurts. Initially, it's a stumbling block until we can get over ourselves and we can truly look to Jesus. And so this is why Jesus uses the picture of the family to describe how much of a struggle it will be for people to hear this. 
I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those within his own household. You can understand why I gave Caleb this text to preach. Our student ministry could tell all of the students that they could be enemies with their parents, right? Or your parents, that your students are gonna be enemies of yours. He came to set a man against his own household. This is what the gospel does. And if we read that word set against, that seems like a, it's honestly a little bit of a softer way of putting it, for I have come to set a man against his father. The original language, that word set against, really means to incite revolt, to ultimately reject authority. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says this. I have come that you would reject the authority of the family, that a man would be set against his own father, the authority of his father. And for you to understand this, we have to understand Jewish life in this context. The family unit was the ultimate. So many in our context, we've sort of lost this. But in Jesus' day, when he speaks these words, the family was the primary relationship that mattered. When a husband and wife would get married, do you know what would happen? Husbands, you're gonna get really excited that you're not in this context any longer. You would just add on to your mother and father-in-law's house because the daughter would just stay there. She would just shift rooms kind of a little, you'd add on a little area, this would be the new family's house. So the husband and the, the, the new bride and groom would be married and they would live in this place just adjoined to her parents' house. And then that would continue for generation to generation because the family was ultimate. This is what was primary. And Jesus takes the example of what the culture holds up as ultimate, as primary. And he says, I've come to tear all of that down. The gospel message will be offensive because it's more important, it's more vital than the relationships that you hold most dear. As we think about this in our own context, I don't know what relationships, what things you hold most primary, but Jesus is clearly getting to the point here that being a disciple means that he must be overwhelmingly first. Jesus will not be second. The Bible talks about God and he describes God as a jealous God. We think of that and it's kind of hard for us to think again because when we hear jealousy, we think ninth grade boyfriend and girlfriend situation. That's not what Jesus is getting at here, what the Bible says when he talks. God is a jealous God, meaning that he will not allow anything else to take his place. He must be overwhelmingly first. If Jesus is not valued above all, then he's not valued at all. We often say, I've said this many times, he must be Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. Lord, the king, the ruler of our lives, he must be overwhelmingly first. If Jesus is first, then he is everything. He will not, he cannot sit in the background of our lives. And this is really in our context where walking with Jesus, the rubber really meets the road. 
Too many of us, too often, think of our relationship with Christ. We think about being disciples of Jesus, and it's something that is secondary that we just add on. I'm a mother, and I'm a father. I'm an employer, I'm an employee. I'm a student, I'm an athlete, I'm whatever, and we fill in these blanks and we put those things as primary, those things are first, those titles, those roles that we live in, they are the things that are most important to us, and we think that we're fine if we just take all of those roles and we sprinkle in a little Jesus on the side, maybe even on the top of that. I'm a father, and so I just need to add a little Jesus to my life as being a father, just sort of let him sort of sprinkle in. Jesus, get this, this will be profound. He will not be the Parmesan on your spaghetti. He's all. He must be all. And just think about Jesus, again, and we talk about this a lot. He knows our hearts. He knows exactly the temptations, the desires, the things that will pull us away that could lead us astray. We're about to have the Olympics. Do you remember Michael Johnson? Gold Shoes, Michael Phelps. Some of y'all remember Carrie Scrugg. I know Jessica does. She loves Carrie Scrugg, the gymnast. You know, she landed on that one foot ankle back in 90, was that 96? It's really old, sorry kids. (laughs) More recently, Simone Biles. We know all their names. Now tell me who was second. We don't know one, I, I... They might know who was second to them. But the world, no one knows those names. And this is not an argument for only being first. (laughs) This is not some sort of an athletic pump-up speech. What I'm trying to articulate, Jesus understands that if we're not first, he will be forgotten. If he's not first, he will be forgotten. We will find ourselves in some situation in life where we've tried to just sort of add Jesus in, just kind of want to sprinkle him into our lives, let him be a small part or an influence in this area or that area of our lives. And he knows when temptation, when struggle, when the world comes against us, guess where he will be? He will be forgotten, just like those second place athletes. He must be first. He must be overwhelmingly first. We don't just have to look to the Olympic champions of our day. We can look back to Scripture, to King Solomon himself. Some of you remember in our church, we went through a book, The Study of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the greatest, the wisest, the most powerful, the wealthiest man that ever lived, and he's really trying in that book essentially to understand life, to understand God and all of these sorts of things. Solomon didn't just stop worshiping God as the king of his life. What happened was, slowly but surely, sin entered into his heart, and he started worshiping other things in addition to God. He started adding things in. He started building temples for the gods of his wives. He started looking for hope and for joy in places apart from God. He just started kind of shifting just slightly, small little drifts. God told him, by the way, not to marry foreign women, and then he did it anyway. King Solomon, again, wisest, wealthiest, most powerful man that ever lived. And he started making small shifts, not keeping God at the center, not keeping God in his relationship with Christ first. And he ends up drifting completely away. 
Satan, for those of us who are Christ followers, he won't come against us and he won't give us another God to worship immediately. He will tempt us to drift slowly. He will tempt us to think that it's okay for Jesus to be second, to just be sort of added in. Let me just sort of include Jesus in this. I'm gonna go this way with my life. I'm just gonna invite Jesus to come along for the ride with me. That's how we live. And Jesus says here, that's not what, that is not acceptable. We're not gonna be tempted immediately to abandon Jesus. We're gonna be tempted to put other things in front of him, to put other things ahead of him. If you think about this in our nation as we celebrate our nation's birthday today, Think about how far our nation has shifted culturally from generation to generation. Many experts would say that we are in the present, a post-Christian nation, and that means that the next generation that follows us will have no recollection, no understanding of the Bible, that the Bible is the true and the authoritative word of God. One generation Parents have a high priority of worshiping God, keeping Christ first, and then they're tempted and they drift away and they no longer make being a disciple of Jesus a priority for themselves or their children. These kids then grow up and make being a disciple of Jesus less of a priority for their own children. Then those kids, the grandchildren of that generation, grow up and Jesus is not a priority at all. And then the next generation comes along, they have no concept of who Jesus is. Satan, similarly to God, is patient. He wants to destroy all that Jesus came to offer us, and he's willing to take the slow road to do that. And so we have to ask ourselves as disciples, what are our priorities Is Jesus overwhelmingly first? And we need to realize that our priorities don't just impact our own lives, but have an impact for generations to come. Parents in the room, grandparents in the room, your priorities, your life has an impact on your children and their children and their children. What will be known of Jesus? And we have to ask, do our kids, do the generations coming behind us see us worshiping Jesus and prioritizing being a disciple of Jesus above all? Or do they see us worshiping other things? We've talked about before in this room last summer, or two summers ago, sorry, we lost last summer, y'all know, (laughs) two summers ago, We sent our students to camp. They're about to go to camp here in a couple weeks. And one of the things that the speaker, the teacher of their camp week was addressing was performance and perfection. And he asked the students that were gathered there, hundreds of students, but our students there, just think about the ones that are in our families. He asked them, do you feel like you have to perform in order to be loved? Do you feel like perfection is the thing that is required of you? And they raise their hands, almost every single one of them. Our kids, not just all the other kids out there that didn't get to grow up in city church here in the great Melissa, Texas. No, 
Our kids raising their hands, thinking that their worth is found in their performance. I can tell you, I will tell you, friends, that did not happen because the world put that upon them. That happened because their homes put that upon them, and we should feel the conviction of that. It should sit on our hearts that our children believe that their relationship with us or their relationship with God or anything is based upon what they do on a field, in a classroom, or anything related to the world's success and not connected specifically and wholly to the work of Jesus and the unconditional love that Jesus has for them. This is what should bring conviction to our hearts. And that tells us we can look at our children and we can see the response that they have and we can know that perhaps for too much of their lives, we've let Jesus just be something we add in. We just sort of sprinkle in, and he hasn't been primary. He hasn't been ultimate in our lives. Is your family or Jesus first? Is your kids' performance, success, or Jesus first? Is what you want to do with your free time, or is Jesus first? Are your finances and your calendars directed around putting Jesus first? This is what Jesus meant when he came, saying that I've come to bring the sword and I will cause division and I will cause revolt because my disciples will not follow the ways of the world. They will live and look differently and it will cause division. Have you found yourselves being attacked because of decisions that you make for your family related to being obedient to following Jesus? I would challenge you in this culture, if that hasn't happened, then more than likely, we have not been living with Jesus as Lord in that area of our lives. When he is Lord, offense will be taken. We will be looked at as differently. But here, finally, Jesus encourages us. I know that is hard for us to hear and even perhaps seems as if Jesus is, man, he is really on the attack today through this text. But Jesus reminds us, and he closes in 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, but whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In all that we do, I'd ask you the question. In all of those pursuits that perhaps have gotten in the way of Jesus being first, being Lord of our lives, what are we after? What are we looking for? We're looking for life, right? We're looking for happiness. We're looking for joy. We're looking for something that would just sort of encourage us because we know that life is hard. There are challenges that we experience the brokenness. And so we engage in all of the activities, everything that we do, we're looking for something to give us peace. And Jesus, it's, he's given it to us right here. He's promised us right here. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You'll find your life in Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is worth it. Jesus is saying, yes, you might experience all of the hardships. Being a disciple means that there might be breakdowns here in the family or in some other, whatever that thing that you hold most dear, there might be challenges there as you follow me, as you're obedient to my word, as you live for me alone. Yes, hardship will come, but Jesus says, let me promise you something, friend. You will find life. You will find life that is everlasting. You will find life, he promises this in John chapter 10, life in abundance, That doesn't mean things. (laughs) That means an abundant life, a full life, a complete life, a whole life. The good life is not found in the perfect family. The good life is not found in success in your jobs, in the perfect spouse. The good life is not found in the achievements of your children or their children. The good life is found in Jesus. And so often, we find ourselves looking in the wrong place. And what Jesus is here to remind us is say, listen, let go of all of the things that this world seems to be offering you. What those things are, that offer that the world is making to you is an offer of sand, It will fall away. It will turn to nothing. But the life that I have for you, yes, it will cause challenges. Yes, there will be offense. There will be division. There will be hardships. But it is a life of abundance. It's an everlasting life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. We lay down the desires and the dreams and the hopes that we think are the priorities of our lives and we find our life holy in Jesus. Some of you in this room have been searching for a long time, trying to find hope, joy, peace, the perfect life, the picturesque life. You've designed it all in your mind and Jesus is saying to you here this morning, I have come to give you life, it's in me alone. Would you lay down your life? Would you let go of all of the things that you desire and find your life only in me? Being a disciple of Jesus, it is and will be offensive to many in the world. Being a disciple of Jesus means that he is ultimately first. And being a disciple of Jesus is worth it because it is the place, he is the place where we find everlasting, eternal, and abundant life. This is the life that Jesus offers you. This is the life of the disciple. And we're gonna look further at that in the coming weeks. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for the opportunity to be together, to open your word. And I pray now you would let your word sink deeply into our hearts. Perhaps some in this room, like me, are recognizing, realizing that there are areas of their lives where you have not been first. And so I thank you that you also tell us if we confess our sins to you, 
If we, if we let you know, we let you in, we bring that out of the darkness of our hearts and bring those things out into the light and just share them, that you are faithful to forgive us. You don't hold these things against us. And so, Jesus, I confess now. And I pray that we collectively as a church family could confess together that too often in some ways you have not been first. I've been too focused on pleasing man rather than pleasing you, Jesus. I don't want to be offensive to the world. I want to be liked and loved by everyone. So I pray that you'd help me, help us to put you first. Yes, Lord, let us, let us not be offensive just for the sake of being offensive, but let our message of grace and kindness and hope and mercy and love, let the message of the gospel be the message that causes the offense. Because we know that when your word goes out, when that message of hope goes out, even to the offended heart, you are stirring up in them. You are stirring up reconciliation and restoration. So help us to put you first, Jesus. Help us to know that you are worth it, that following you, being your disciples is worth it. Let our lives be a reflection of that to the world around us. I know there's bound to be someone in this room, Jesus, who needs to let go of this life, who needs to lose their life so that they might find it in you this morning. So I pray, Holy Spirit, whatever you're doing in these hearts, would you help spur them along to say, yes, I let go of the things of this world and I turn my life, I give my life, I find my life, my hope in Jesus. I accept that I'm not enough. I accept that I'm not worthy. I accept that absent of you, Jesus, it would be right for God to just cast me out. But I turn to you, Jesus, now and believe in your message of hope. I believe that it's true. I put my faith and my confidence in what you did on the cross on my behalf. I pray in some way, Spirit, lead us to believe that. Whoever needs to hear that, whoever needs to believe that, help them. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.